Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Dr. Brian Dimitrovic, thank you so much for being on the Mike Litton Experience. Well, thank you very much, Mike. It's great to be here. We're super excited to have you. So you were the co-author with Dr. Arthur Laffer of um, of Taxes Have Consequences, which is, is one of my favorite books. And I want to talk about that in depth, um, but I also want to just kind of go through your life story real quick, if that's okay. Sure. We basically, we believe everybody has a story and our passion is to help them tell it. What we know, doctor, is that as we as you tell your story, there will be people out there that will hear this your story and they will connect with you. And that's what we're about. We're about people connecting and then inspiring and motivate them, motivating them through that connection. Sure. Yeah, so let's start true. with where you were born. Yeah, I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, I grew up and I lived there well through high school. Yeah, and that's born and raised. So what was your favorite thing about growing up in Pittsburgh? Yeah, well, I grew up in the 70s and in, in the 80s. Uh, this was a great city. Um, it's, uh, you know, that was the golden era, the Steelers and the Pirates. I mean, yeah. I, I was 12 when the Steelers and the Pirates both won the the World Series and the Super Bowl. And right, so they called them title town that year, yeah. You don't need to do anything else in life. That's all that happens. <laughs> I've gotten to know a little bit Phil Garner uh, when I lived in Houston. I got to know him fairly well. He was the Pirates' second baseman from that yeah. time. Then he was manager of the Houston Astros. And, uh, you know, we used to talk about that, about how great it is for, like, little boys to have their teams win the World Series. So Absolutely. It, it might be the highlights. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. So so going to high school, where, which high school did you go to in Pittsburgh? Yeah, I went to Central Catholic High School, which is kind of right in the middle of the city in Pittsburgh. Did you have a favorite subject? Well, you, it's it's high school that got me interested in the topic we're going to talk about today. Okay. So this was the uh, first term of the Reagan administration, and my major activity was in forensics, in public speaking, and all all the topics that we had to discuss in current affairs were about supply side economics and Reaganomics, right. and that that completely launched my interest in this topic right right then. Yeah, the Reagan administration did the same thing for me. So yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I was, yeah. I was not, we're not much different in age, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, so, so in growing up, who was the most influential person to you growing up? Well, certainly uh, you know, my family. I mean, I dedicated the book, my first book that I wrote 15 years ago about the history of supply side economics, the Reagan revolution in economics book called Econoclast. I dedicated to my forensics coach, brother Robert Wilsbuck. Yeah. FSC. I, I dedicated the book to him because he's the one who, who really got me going and, hey, learn how to speak about this before audiences and learn how to absorb the topic and then relate it to other people. So I'd mentioned Brother Robert. I love it. Okay. So you so you graduate high school. Where do you go? Then I went to New York City for college. I went to Columbia okay. University for college. And that was, I guess, maybe in the second term of the Reagan administration. And I got to see 
the incredible economic boom that just took over New York City after its period of terrible degradation in the 70s. They early in yeah, and just so much, so much business activity was coming to New York because Reagan, we can talk about this maybe later on. Oh, sure. It's a complete reorganization of all businesses in the United States because yeah. all businesses as of 1980 were successful given the current high tax code. Right. Well, he lowered tax rates. He ruined all the business models in the United States of all currently successful businesses. So incredible reorganization had to take place. And so much of that was thought through and implemented in New York City. And so as a college kid, I kind of got to witness all that that energy at that time. That's awesome. So you graduated with a degree in economics? In history. So my okay. major was history. Okay. I first started as an economics student, but then got more interested in history and then was also a math minor because that had been required for an economics major. So I was a history major and a math minor. Gotcha. So you graduate from Columbia. Then where do you go? Then I taught uh, public school for a year in the in the Bronx. Oh, uh, I bet that was interesting. Kind of that was neat. It was, what was, grade did you teach? I taught seventh grade, a social wow. science and math, my two fields. Uh, again, in the South Bronx. And it was, you know, the last golden era of a completely terrible neighborhood. You know, yeah. since then it's been renovated. But it was still, uh, you know, there were still 2,000 murders in New York City in that year. Wow. Uh, it's terrible. But um, it was great to, to be with kids in the South Bronx. I mean, that was a wonderful experience. And then I went to graduate school uh, okay. the year after that. Uh, I went to Harvard for graduate school and got a PhD in history. Awesome. That's amazing. Okay. So we're up to, um, so you graduate from, or you get, you, you receive your PhD or earn your PhD. What year? I got the PhD in 2000. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So then from there, where did you go? Then I taught at a couple schools for the next five years, uh, including back in Pennsylvania. And then uh, for good, I got a, a, a tenure track job at teaching history at Sam Houston State University in near Houston, Texas, which then yeah. has become my favorite city in the United States. Yeah. And I lived in Houston for 16 years and oh, wow. was chairman of the history department at Sam Houston State in Huntsville, which is near Houston. I lived in the Woodlands, which is one of the greatest suburbs ever created. Yeah. Uh, and I got to see just the economic boom. The American dream, I think, is operational in Houston, Metro Houston, Metro Dallas too, Texas in general, better than any place I've ever seen. Yeah. So the that. American dream is just alive and well for everybody in, in Houston, Texas. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So so you so 16 years, then where do you go? Then, well, I had been working with Arthur Lapper ever since I wrote my first book in 2007, uh, a lot. And then I started working full time for him right. um, remotely at first in Houston. And then two years ago, two and a half years ago, I moved to Nashville. So I, I left the academy. I left my university job and I work with Arthur Laffer full time. I have done that for four years. And he used to be in San Diego. Yeah, but it was the highest tax state in the country, California yeah. was. And so he said, I wanted to go to the lowest tax state in the country. And he came, He moved his whole operation from California to Nashville in 2006. Yeah, yeah. And I know he's happy you did that. So you now work for, for Dr. Laffer full time, right? Yes, and you write with him, taxes mm -hmm. have consequences. Yep. What was your favorite thing about writing that book? Yeah, and we had one other co-author, Jeannie Sinkfield, who was right. just in incredible with us. Yeah. Uh, well, my favorite thing, I think uh, I agree. He His favorite thing in the book turns out to be a chapter that I wrote. Uh, so I think it's my favorite, too. So I, I, one of the chapters I wrote, we worked on it all together, of course, but one of the chapters, just mine, was chapter two. Yeah. 
which was uh, 20 vignettes uh, on the biggest ways that top 1% earners have striven not to report their income legally yeah. for taxation. And so just looking at all the tax shelters that the rich have used when tax rates have gotten high turned out to be a really fun task because they are so creative at that. And they were all terribly legal. Yeah. They, you know, there was nothing wrong with it, but they really figured out how to skirt those tax rates. So that was probably my favorite chapter. Yeah, that really, that was one of my favorite chapters too. And I, and I love the fact, I love how it set the, set the table <laughs> for the rest of the history that you covered in the book. Right. Because the, the basic theme or pardon me, the, let me put it this way. The basic takeaway that I have from this is every time we raise taxes, the wealthy figure out a way to either lower their income or take it somewhere else. Right. Like they'll go offshore, you know, whatever it is that they need to do because they have that capability. Right. So years ago, I had a radio, I've been on radio and television in San Diego since 2011. But years ago, I was on radio during the Obama administration. And one of the things that they kept doing was they kept increasing regulations. They kept increasing taxes. And the whole idea was they were going to get people who were self-employed. They were going to go after these people that had, you know, supposedly this monstrous amount of money. Mm -hmm. I have friends in, the, in, in our industry. I'm in real estate out here. But I have friends in our industry that are in construction and that type of thing that when taxes get too high and they see a recession coming because there's a correlation between the two every single time when they see that they make this guy actually takes all of his equipment puts it in a parks it in a in a in a field locks it up and takes 3 years off yep right doesn't come back until yep. it's until everything gets more encouraging and right i mean there's there's real wisdom to what you found in your research in terms of what I've seen people do because they're just not incentive. If, you know, the thing that I kept trying to tell people was being self-employed in the United States is a choice. Mm -hmm. It's not a requirement, right. right? You can decide to shut it down at any time. I just sat and had breakfast or lunch with a guy yesterday at a, at a business conference. And we were talking about that very thing. We, he got to a point to where, business where taxes basically were kept being increased and so did regulations and he just got to a point to where he just decided to not do it anymore mm -hmm. he just kind of retired now he's getting back in right sure i you know speaking of monster amounts of money our co-author Jeannie singfield will not be uh, too too embarrassed uh, to reveal that you know she and her husband rex and their their business partner david booth uh you know are such people with monster amounts of money they founded dimensional fund advisors the eighth largest money manager in the in the country. Um, so, you know, Jeannie just confirmed, of course, uh, with all sorts of uh, real world experience, um, what people with a lot of resources are capable of doing. Yeah. Um, they have acquired a lot of resources, so they know how to protect what they have. Exactly. Much better than the tax code does. Exactly. The yeah. tax code has to learn it from them. Moreover, they have all the freedom to do that. They don't need the money. They don't need income streams. They have all the potential expertise. Mm -hmm. So they have the whip hand. They can do anything they want with their money. Yeah. So if you raise the price of earning money, they are the best at making sure they don't have to pay that price. 
yeah. and doing it legally as well. That's the kicker because the government just have to, that's we have a piece of evidence after evidence in the book. The government's like, yeah, you win. You're right. Yeah. Well, because that's why I love chapter two so much because it really did set the stage for all of the rest of the history that you covered. I mean, I learned so much about the Great Depression, the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression. And, and, and I mean, I knew about Smoot-Hawley, right? But I didn't know the details about Smoot-Hawley as it related to taxes. I mean, I, I anyway, it, it was, the, your book is just amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I'm, I'm sure you can tell, I'm completely geeking out over it. Yeah. So one of the things that I love the most, one of the things that made me a huge, huge fan of Dr. Laffer was the Economic Recovery and Tax Act of 1981, yep. where he implemented, he was the chief architect of that, of that yep. law, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he included was a thing called ACRS, yep. which is something I've talked about and taught about for years. Mm -hmm. It literally took commercial real estate and gave it a shot in the arm, and, and residential real estate as well, yep. a shot in the arm that we needed. We yep. were bad shape when this law was implemented mm -hmm. and man it was incredible it was we literally had the single greatest period of organic economic growth that we've ever seen before or since in this nation yeah i mean yeah, absolutely it's incredible no the 1980 was amazing so the, uh, the accelerated cost recovery system for depreciation was amazing so just to set the stage i mean that in 1980, when Ronald Reagan was running for president, the top rate of the income tax was 70%, 70, yeah. 100 is 30. <laughs> seven zero, yeah. Yeah, the top corporate rate was 46%. It had just been 48%, it had been 52% recently. So basically a 50% corporate rate, a 70% top rate. Yeah. So if you're talking people with money, say people are buying and selling buildings, you know, they have to pay, their corporation has to pay 50%. And then if the firm pays a dividend, the individual has to pay 70% tax on that. Exactly. It's insane. So Reagan cut that top rate first from 70 to 50. Mm -hmm. And then he took the top rate from, uh, from 50 to 28 right. while taking the corporate rate from 46 to 34. So all of a sudden it just opened up all these possibilities. But there's one further tax cut that was just as big. And that was the elimination of inflation. Yeah. So in, in the 1970s, when inflation was 10, 14% per year, if a business wanted to take depreciation, you could only take the nominal amount of money that you spent right. against you. But if you'd spent that money five years before, meanwhile, inflation has been 10% per year, you could only deduct the, the actual amount. Exactly. And that's not anything after but inflation. But it's eating up, as that's happening, it's eating up the purchasing power of yeah. that money dramatically. Yeah. So that's why I'm going to say what I saw in New York City uh, after 1985. The businesses that were successful as of 1980, say you take the Fortune you know, 500 as of 1980, look at those top 10. All those companies had figured out how to flourish better than anyone else mm -hmm. in the high tax environment. When Reagan suddenly cut tax rates, those business models were destroyed. But they were flipped on their head. They were flipped. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And then all these assets had to be sold and reorganized into new entities. And that's really what all that merger acquisition, corporate litigation, management consultant, I banking stuff in the 80s was. Yeah. And that's settled. And then nobody needed New York anymore. And that's why New York's in decline right now. And they're not competitive because they've had tax rates. We needed New York for that decade or two to figure out how to accommodate the new Reagan tax cut. And then goodbye, New York, if you're not going to cut tax rates yourself.
Right, exactly. And then goodbye, a mass exodus yep. of people and businesses are leaving New York, Wall Street included, and yep. headed somewhere else. Yeah. The 80s, Reagan really faked out New York City because it had a terrible 1970s, obviously, raising taxes. Now, Hugh Carey, the governor of New York State, cut tax rates really nicely in the latter 1970s, early 1980s. So, you know, the top uh, New York personal income tax rate went was as high as 15 percent, which is yeah. just stupid. Yeah. And it went down Crazy. below 10. So he, he had about a third of a cut or more. So that kind of got New York going again. But then Reagan brought all this business because corporate reorganization became the name of the game. New York mistook that in the 1980s, 1990s. Hey, we're back. We don't need to change anything. Right. No, that was temporary. Right. Now you have to cut tax rates yourself to maintain attract businesses. They never got that message. Exactly. That's why it's in decline. Yeah, and it's and it's you can see it. You can yeah. see it. You can. I mean, you can feel it. For people who are telling me they can feel it there. So I, it. I sold new homes in Tampa, Florida, um, oh. a few years ago, Boom and town. I ended up with a whole bunch of New Yorkers. Yep. That were coming to Tampa, right? Yep. Um, yep. In fact, the the firm that's responsible for being the clearinghouse for stocks on Wall Street, they yeah. moved everything to Tampa. Okay, yeah, 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 They're yeah. Now down there. All that, yeah, right. Yeah, sure. the guy that runs it, I sold him his house. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. No, so, I see all that in Florida, all the Dunkin' Donuts and Wawa and all these East Coast yeah. things. You know. Yeah. Uh, so no, I I know I can from my own experience when I go to New York now, it's nowhere near as crowded. Uh, I mean, I just everyone was there. So no, New York, you have to cut tax rates or Dallas is going to become the biggest city in the United States. Exactly. You know, uh, so cut tax rates, New York. Who cared in 1978? And that was the brilliant thing about your book, was it literally lined out for anybody how taxes affect behavior, mm -hmm. how taxes affect what people do, furtive movements, right? What they do to try to, to, for lack of a better term, mitigate the amount of taxes that they pay. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's incorporating in different states. It's all kinds of different things that people do. Like you showed us, you know, they're, they're legal, right? But they do it because it's something that allows them to, to get from out from under a lot of this burden. And so it's, it's just, I feel like it's brilliant. So I wanted to share with you that um, I ended up on the Mike Reagan show in 1992 on the eve of the presidential election. Okay. And yeah. the reason I did was I was in a call room, call center in, in San Marcos, right here by where I live. Mm -hmm. And we were calling people the day before the presidential election to just, they were Republicans, right? We were just calling from half of the Republican party to, to make sure that remind people that tomorrow's, you know, poll, tomorrow's the election. We're looking forward to their support for then uh, President Bush, right, 41. Yeah. And this lady who had voted 40 years Republican mm -hmm. said, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to vote for him this year. Yeah. And I stopped and I said, may I ask yeah. why? Right. right. And she said, yeah. She said, I, she said the, the Clinton campaign mm -hmm. has made it sound like current then, then President Bush, who was then Vice President Bush in the Reagan administration, mm -hmm was asleep at the wheel when mm -hmm. he was in charge of FISLIC, right? Federal Savings Loan Insurance Corporation. Okay, yeah, and yeah the, right. And that that was the reason we had the, the savings loan crisis. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, I said, would you mind if we take a few minutes and talk about what really happened? And she said, I'd love to hear this. Nobody else is talking about it. So I took the next 20 minutes. And what I explained to her was the Tax Reform Act and Economic Recovery Act of 1981 
-hmm. and it impl implemented ACRS. Mm -hmm. ACRS drove up the 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 um, inherent, if you will, um, demand for real estate, mm -hmm. and that at in 1986, Congress retroactively removed ACRS from the tax in the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Yep. And at the time, in 1994, there was this thing called the Participation Act that had been passed that allowed savings and loans to participate in these projects that they were financing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these, a lot of them become became equity partners in these projects. And when the 1986 Tax Reform Act hit, the night that it was signed, all of the master appraisals, all of the commercial appraisals nationwide were null and void that night. Mm -hmm. They all had to be redone the next day. Right. Right. Because of the massive impact ACRS had yeah. on commercial real estate, right? Mm -hmm. So I explained all this to her. But all the way to the end, and I explained it to her, right? And she said, you know what? I'm so glad you called. I'm voting for President Bush. And I said, well, I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy you made that decision, right? Right? You know, thanks, yeah. thanks so much for your support. I hung up the phone. All 44 other people in the room had hung up the phones and were listening to everything. Okay. I said. They were like yeah. hanging on every word. Okay. Yeah. I got a standing ovation and the lady that was running it for the Republican party, her name was Barbara. She goes, come here, young man. Right. So I go yeah. over to her desk and she goes, you're going to be on the Mike Reagan show tonight for 30 minutes. You're going to be his only guest. Yeah. And you and Mike Reagan are going to tell the world what you just told that lady. Okay. And it was cool. I mean, I'm yeah. 24 years old at the time. Yeah. Right. And we took calls from all over the nation, from New York, from Texas, yeah. from Florida, right? It was really heady stuff. It was really yeah. something. Yeah. Uh, of course, we know, you know, President Bush lost the next day. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of that came from the studying that I did of Dr. Laffer mm -hmm. and how he was the chief architect of a lot of this that took place that created this economic boom that we had. Right. Sure, I can tell you a little bit about his involvement with the, uh, the that aspect of the tax cut. So he had always felt that uh, it was more important to cut tax rates and to conquer inflation than to uh, change the depreciation schedules. Although he's he's in favor of immediate expensing, and he had a lot to do with that in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017. Um, so. Uh, that Norman Ture and Steve Enton and these other guys in Washington in the 70s had developed this accelerated cost recovery system because the inflation was so high. Right. Because you know, 10% inflation per year, you know, you can't depreciate over a period of several years. I mean, because the money's not worth anything. Right. What 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 Dr. Laffer's argument was, well, if you eliminate inflation, you're going to eliminate a lot of that problem. And if you lower the corporate rate, you're going to eliminate a lot of the problem because all this is deducting from your revenue that's subject to the corporate rate. So his finest hour, he felt, was helping to defeat inflation and then lower the corporate rate. And then that that put every all the businesses more on equal footing. And, and the accelerated cost recovery system became less uh, pronounced or less necessary even. And that's one of the reasons it was, it was tabled in the 1986 Tax Act. So, but I feel sorry for the savings and loan industry. It, it, once, once inflation happened, it was impossible. They all their mortgages were written in the 60s when interest rates were four percent, so their assets were paying four percent, but they had to pay their depositors 10 percent because that was the inflation rate. Yeah, true. So it just made their business model impossible. Yeah, I just my feeling about it is ACRS had a major impact, and I lived it, I, I lived it. I, I was, you know, um, it had a major impact on the demand that we had for our real estate. 
Sure. Yes. 24% of this nation's net worth is real estate. So you yeah. have to take care of the real estate if you're going to take care of the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. my feeling about it was, and I, and I knew people that were involved in a lot of these limited partnerships and things that ACRS helped to create. Yeah. And I watched that demand. I watched here the demand for real estate changed dramatically okay. where you know you and and in order to in order to and you know this in order to take advantage of that part of the tax code you had to go buy a piece of commercial real estate you okay. couldn't implement it on the ones you owned right so yeah, you started did. turnover right, right which created a ton of economic activity so it's um it was i feel like it was a major major coup and I felt like it was a major thing that, that you know, the whole 27 and a half and 33 and a half year depreciation schedule for residential, yeah. non-residential, yeah. who in the world came up with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was back in the 50s. Right. Originally when it started. But yeah, there was a depreciation law in 1954. But yeah, we didn't talk about that in the book so much. But uh, all <laughs> but it's just crazy, you know, it's yeah. crazy. So do you mind if we talk about the, the Tax Reform Act of 2017 for a second? Let's do it, yeah. So one of the things that happened in the Tax Reform Act of 2017 was the standard deduction was raised fairly dramatically. Mm -hmm. And what it did was it kind of made, or, or for lack of a better term, it made real estate less advantageous to own, owner-occupied real estate, less advantageous to own from a tax standpoint. Yeah, of course. So do you feel like that had a positive or a negative effect on, on the real estate market? Well, the the main um the headline of the tax form of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of, of 2017 uh, was what we call the sore thumb in the book. So what, what Donald Trump did in 2017 is he just looked at the horizon of the tax code. So what is going on in this tax code? What is sticking out? as like the worst part of it right now. Right. There was one thing that was sticking out and that was the corporate tax rate. The top right. corporate tax rate, which affects virtually all corporations was 35%, way right. higher than any kind of competitor internationally. Correct. You know, the average was probably you know, 22 or something like that or 15 internationally, whatever it was. And there were trillions, trillions and trillions parked. of dollars parked yeah. offshore. Yeah. And he looked at the personal oh. income tax rate, which was then 40% effectively, maybe 42 if you have mandatory add-ons. And that was comparable you know, to other competitors, you know, France, England, all that stuff. England had a, what, a 45% rate or whatever it was. And so, yeah, okay, ours is you know, competitive, a little lower, but the sore thumb was the corporate tax rate. Right. So the main thing he wanted to do in that thing was just get that corporate, find, find the highest tax rate and cut it. That's what the legendary editor of the Wall Street Journal, Robert Bartley, always used to say. Here's what you do. You want to follow Reaganomics? Here's what you do. You find the highest marginal rates and you cut them. Exactly. That's what and Trump took Robert Bartley's advice. You know, it was so great. He found the highest marginal rate and he cut it. Yeah. Well, there are other things that are you know, less, less pronounced aspects of that bill, of that law. And one of them was the smaller cuts in the personal side. And then some of the revisions of the exemption schedule, of which you know, certainly the standard deduction uh, was prominent. There's al also the state and local tax uh, limitation. Yeah. Um, that is, I, I, I do sympathize with John Tamney's argument that you know, the really big doers, the people who make a lot of money, say in California, you, you should not discourage their making of money by limiting their deductions. I'm very sympathetic to that argument. Yeah. So I, I think the best way to do it would be to continue to trivialize those exemptions. 
okay. by lowering the rate. The more you lower the rate, the less valuable the exemption becomes. That right. was the great lesson of the 1920s, the great lesson of 1986. If you lower that personal rate and that corporate rate even more, you know, who cares about a deduction? It's deduction from a low rate. Deduction from a high rate, now I care about. Right. So I think the way forward, yes, there were some imbalances or create, keep lowering those rates. And then people stop caring about it and just go ahead with economic activity. And so the reason I'm asking is one of the things that happened in 2018, yeah. after the law was passed and implemented, mm -hmm. was I started getting phone calls from people that are in the building industry. Mm -hmm. and they were telling me that they were going to their their shows that they go to, you know, their meetings every year. Mm -hmm. And they were literally being approached by hedge fund managers that were that were literally telling them we want you to go buy a piece of land we want you to build a thousand homes single family detached homes mm -hmm. we want to rent them out we don't want to sell them mm -hmm. right yeah. and part of that was was driven by that standard deduction increase i can see that yeah yeah sure and so that's that's the only reason i'm asking is because i'm I'm literally getting feedback. I'm sure you can imagine. I'm getting feedback from people about this is something that's happening now. And the other day I was on the phone with a gentleman. It turned out he was one of the chief, he was chief of staff of one of the largest hospitals in San Diego County. And he was asking me about why um, Blackstone started buying, because uh, he, re he receives their annual report every year, why Blackstone started buying single family detached homes in the thousands mm -hmm. in, in starting in 2018. And I explained to him the Tax Reform Act, but I also explained to him that we have this we have this generation of millennials that have PTSD where home ownership is concerned. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, because they were kids back during the Great Recession, and they watched people that they loved lose their houses, mm -hmm. and so they don't trust real estate. So, so it's the secondary reason why these hedge funds are buying these properties and, and renting them out. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, I'm glad you, you told me all that uh, kind of, uh, you know, specialized information. I will say this. Yeah, it is true that in a, a, a places where where home values are high and your tax bill is likely to be, say, over over twelve thousand dollars or twenty five thousand dollars, whatever the stand, standard deduction is now. Um, yeah, your your if your property bills over that, then the the tax reform of 1980 of 2017 is not going to be very favorable in terms of deducting those taxes. So yeah, you might as well buy 100 houses once, yeah. once you're over that tax threshold. So I see that. I think the solution there, and we're working on this right now at the Laffer Center, I think the solution there is to lower property taxes. Yeah. Uh, property taxes have just gone crazy in this country. You know, when you have the nominal increase in home values, whatever it's been, you know, re, re, you know Case Schiller's up, I don't know, 30%, 50%, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Well, most taxing authorities are just riding that up. So uh, we've had a boom in property tax revenue in this country. And that's just a real tax increase on homeowners. Yeah. And the only thing that's going to do is destroy homeownership yeah. and, dry, and, and, and make it drive it more into the hands of investors as opposed to individual purchasers. So again, the way the way I think we would attack it from this firm, from this center, is we'll just lower tax rates. At this point, the property tax rate. So uh, you know, if people can't afford homes, uh they're because they can't deduct it, their taxes, their taxes have been too high. Yeah. Lower property tax rates. I mean California obviously was the predecessor, was the pioneer with Prop 13. Prop 13 to drive uh, that kind of stuff has to happen nationwide. Yeah. So I don't disagree with you. I, my feeling is 
we've got to do something. And the reason that I feel that way is we're seeing inventory levels at the same, at the lowest they've been in history mm -hmm. and they just keep dropping. And part of the reason that inventory levels are dropping is because a lot of the hedge funds are in now the business of buying property and, and renting it out. So mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, it's kind of a, there's kind of an imbalance there. And the standard deduction increase didn't help that. So it's um, definitely something that, that we need to try to address. Well, I'm, I'm going to say one more thing about the housing market. We certainly learned this in the 1970s. Um, all, all, all markets that are, have a very close connection to geology, to the earth, you know, so that would be oil, you know, precious metals, gold, uh, land. Um, they are the classic inflation hedges. Yeah. So anytime there's a question about the credibility of the monetary standard, the credibility of the dollar, there is going to be a boom in the geological features of the earth. And the classic examples are oil, gold, and land. Yeah. Um, so land is going to go up in price if there are questions about the legitimacy of the dollar, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So, the, you know, on the tax side, there's, there's some things you can do, but... You know, in the 1970s, why did land go up? Why did housing prices go up like crazy, forcing Proposition 13 in 1978? Uh, because the United States went off the gold standard. Mm -hmm. That's why it happened. Yeah. Because I was like, well, I don't know what the dollar's worth. So they plowed their money into gold, which went from $35 to $800 an ounce. They plowed their money into oil, which went from three to you know, $40 a barrel. Mm -hmm. And they plowed their money into land. You know, Case Shiller went up 300% or whatever it was. So... You know, if you have a lousy monetary standard, you're going to have a huge demand for hedges on inflation, and that's going to just drive the housing market way up. Yeah, I agree so with you. If you have a legitimate dollar, you're going to see housing prices absolutely stabilize, if, if not even fall. So, you know, uh, Joe Biden and Janet Yellen and all that stuff can, you know, rail against private equity buying all the houses. You had an inflation, first inflation since the early 80s. Mm -hmm. That's why housing prices are way outpacing inflation. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. So I do have another question for you. So, and this is not a tax question, but it is a question about oil, which is something that you know a lot about. So in the, in the Trump administration, there was a point where oil dropped to $0 a barrel. Yeah. What was behind that? Yeah. That was the, it went negative, actually. That was in the- um, Yeah, it went negative, exactly. Yeah, that was in the uh, in the corona, the uh, early uh, early COVID-19 uh, phase, what, in April, I guess, March, yeah. April of 2020. Uh, 20, 2020. Uh, well, I mean, oil is a futures market, so you 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 have, uh, you make a contract for future delivery, and, and all the refiners were, uh, all, all the, uh, all the storage facilities were full because there was no demand. Right. And so, everything just shut down. It shut down. So people were paying you to take their oil away from them. Wow. Uh, and that, that's why the price went negative. You know, that I, I literally can't, I, I'm, I have an order coming in. I have no place to store it. So you have to take the stuff I have now. So that's right. why it went negative. It turned out to be one of the greatest, I mean, pick the bottom opportunities of all time. And the thing about the oil right. market is it's gigantic. So there were there was no liquidity issue. So <laughs> you could really buy a lot of like you know call options or whatever right then, and you know make you know a thousand fold money in you know in, in three months. That's it. That's it. Well, listen, I really enjoyed this book. I really did. Is there anything else you'd like to cover before we wrap up? Well, I, I'm glad you pointed out the Great Depression. One thing we want to wanted to stress in that book 
um, is that the Great Depression has really not been taught correctly in this country. The Great Depression happened because of tax increases. That's the single greatest cause of that horrible event. It wasn't capitalism, it wasn't industry, the system, it wasn't even the monetary system, or the gold standard, uh-uh. There were just absolutely catastrophic tax increases at every level of government in the early 30s. And that's what caused and sustained the Great Depression. And that was part of what I loved about your book. I learned so much about history that I never learned in school. I took college economics, right? I aced at college economics. I loved it. It was one of my, I'm sure you can tell, it was one of my favorite subjects, right? Um, and I learned so much in this book that literally has never been taught. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, really- We're upset about that because everyone blames the system or the gold standard on the great for the Great Depression. Come on. Yeah. You had the biggest tax increase on the income tax side, the trade side, and at the local level, which was 80% of US governments at that point, huge property tax increases that caused the foreclosure crisis. It was a carnival of taxation in the early 30s. That's why we had it. Yeah. So it's the worst event that everyone always still points to. Okay, yeah. yeah, government caused it with high taxes. Yeah, and I'm telling you, man, I am so, I'm, I mean, I, you know this, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Laffer. And a huge fan of what he did because when he came in with with President Reagan, there were people that laughed at this. There were people that ridiculed. There were people I heard so much about Dr. Laffer and and his and his Laffer curve and you know supply side economics and all this kind of stuff. And I've sat with a bunch of people, and I mean I'm talking a lot of people, and talked about this with them after the fact now. Yeah. And they're absolutely convinced that that Dr. Laffer literally saved this country, saved our economy by doing what he did. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't discourage that kind of thinking. And I am sort of his biographer in a certain way. So I really you know, look at the sources very intimately. Um, it is Arthur Laffer who introduced Ronald Reagan to the idea of cutting tax rates. Right. I mean, Ronald Reagan was not doing that as governor of California. And he didn't do that when he ran for president against Gerald Ford in the Republican primary in 1976. He was talking about a switch where if we cut spending, then we'll just kind of have an aggregate cut in taxes. You cut tax rates. No, that was, he met Arthur Laffer the, for the first time really in December, 1975 in Beverly Hills, and then had a tutorial with them really for those four years, almost, you know, kind of monthly, weekly. So yeah, I mean, Reagan became convinced of Kemp Roth and you know Arthur Laffer is very good friends with Jack Kemp and then Reagan, took the, the Kemp Roth tax cut and made it his own economic policy in the 80 campaign. And yeah, that was all catalyzed by Arthur Lever. There's no question yeah. about it. So. Yeah. And he was, you know, Reagan was a former Democrat. Yeah. He really he wasn't was. a supply sider by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and he voted for Dr. Truman. Dr. Lever had to completely indoctrinate him. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Truman, Reagan, the last Democrat of Reagan apparently voted for was Harry Truman in 1948. Yeah. Um, and that's after Truman had vetoed uh, an incredible tax cut of uh, the previous spring of early 1948, which the Republicans, then they overrode Truman's veto. It's one of the greatest tax rate cuts of all time. That of 1948, yeah. Truman vetoed it. It was overridden. That's why we had a post-war boom. Yeah. And Reagan was still voting for Truman after he vetoed this great tax rate cut. Yeah, and if you ask anybody, and I mean anybody to a person that's in business, they will, and 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 knows about the 50s and, and the post-war you know the post -war, um, expansion, all that, that was a bit, the taxes were the biggest part of it. Yeah. They were literally that that tax act was well, the biggest part of it. Yeah. I mean, in the 50s, the personal rate, the top personal rate was 91 percent. Most of the decade, the top corporate rate was 52 percent. 
unless you organize your business against that reality, you would fail. I mean, you right. had to make money that was not taxable. Yeah. And you had to pay your executives in money that was not taxable because otherwise they wouldn't work for you getting nine exactly. cents on the dollar. And they did that. And so, but when those tax rates were lowered in this, by Kennedy and then by Reagan, I mean, they had to figure out new ways of doing business. And that's yeah. why you had the layoffs in the context of mass hiring. That's one of the great ironies of the 80s. There were all these incredible tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of layoffs, but there were 30 million new jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so how's that work? Yeah. And that was, that was the change in assets because of the change in business models with the tax atmosphere. Well, it was top grading too, right? Because they had to, get, they had to come back and completely reorganize. And the people you currently had that you had employed, you yeah. actually employed them back when it back when tax rates were so high based on the old model. The right. new model required that you go back and completely redo everything. Exactly. That's yeah. what happened. It's a very dynamic time. And so that's what I'm saying. That's when I was in high school and college and all that stuff. And you saw the dynamism, but you didn't really put your finger on it. Um, and that's why places like New York City were faked out. They actually thought, oh, we matter again. No, you don't. We just need your particular expertise now. You will have a permanent place if you yourself cut tax rates. Right. Well, they didn't. And that's why that, that great boom in New York has gone because they never got the lesson that we have to cut tax rates ourselves. Exactly. No, I totally agree. So have you ever read SNL Hell? I don't know that I have, actually. It's a really good book. And it talks about ACRS and SNL. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thanks for that, the recommendation. Yeah, yeah thank I, you. I would highly recommend it. I I loved it. I wrote it. I read it probably twenty years ago now, okay. uh, but it's um, it really got me thinking about yeah. how all of this connects. Like you're talking, and what made me think of it was you just mentioned you know you were in college at the time and you saw this because I did, I was in college at the same time. I saw this exuberant activity, yeah. all this growth and all this you know expansion. Yeah. Right. But I didn't quite put together how it happened. Oh, no, I didn't for years. Yeah. And, yeah. And that actually um, that book, actually a big part of that book was that yeah. explanation that I gave that lady that day where yeah. we were talking about why we were in the savings and loan crisis we were in. Because yeah. we we're in a legitimate in 1992. We were in yeah. the throes of it. Oh, it sure. Was sure. Bad, really yeah. bad. Right. Yeah, very bad. And the Clinton campaign did an effective job of of laying it basically at the feet of president of then president bush who was you know vice president right and it was a big part of why of why they won yeah. the, the bush campaign didn't respond to it well i've read the memos in the bush library that uh, bush had on the savings and loan crisis like from larry Lindsay, uh who was uh, what is on his cea i guess uh Lindsay's memos were excellent i mean he just completely nailed to the president what's going on in the savings and loan industry yeah. he's like they had assets, they're, they're highly regulated in industry. They had assets that were paid before, you know, they're locked in 20 year mortgages before the hyperinflation of the seventies started. And so those assets are paying nowhere near the kind of rate that their depositors want. Yeah. So there was deregulation in the early eighties to permit them to go into asset classes that might meet the interest rate requirements of their depositors. And they couldn't really find them because they were new at this and they bought stuff they didn't know how to deal with. And then they went under. And so yeah. just forget about it. Let's just have an economic boom with low tax rates. And what did uh, George H.W. Bush do? He raised tax rates. Yeah. <laughs> so after, you know, after no new taxes, read my lips, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, yeah, you know, all the, the same as the lens were FDR. I mean, that's the new deal. You don't you don't even need them. I mean, yeah. you know, so, yeah. Yeah, it was really short sighted on his part. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to cover? 
Uh, just, I'm glad you mentioned the 50s. We had a lot of fun writing the chapter on the 50s because all, the whole thing was just tax deductions. Everything. Well, I, can imagine, I can imagine you had an absolute ball writing this book, period. <laughs> because it really was a great read. And, yeah. you know, I highly recommend it. I, I probably have helped you sell some books because yeah, I'm you. telling people about how much I loved it and everything that I was learning from it. I mean, it's it, it there's there are a lot of things in the in this book that never made it to our history books, never made it to our economic text. That's why I wrote the book. We never yeah. hear about it. We never yeah. hear about it. It didn't, you know, I went to college. I yeah. wasn't taught this. No, we're, we're out there on the frontier somewhere, you know, just like, yeah. right, you forget about the academic history. There's not writing about this. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So I really, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy. Will you tell Dr. Laffer I said hi? We'll do that right now. I yeah. appreciate it, buddy. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for being on the Mike Litton Experience. Thanks, Mike. It's great. Appreciate you, Doctor. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor, smash that subscribe button, tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program, and wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760.